You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, well, you might find you get what you need. Good morning. And welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host. <clears throat> Pardon my throat clearing. Still recovering from uh, whatever's going around. Uh, we're here every Monday at 10 a.m. That's 10 a.m. New York or East Coast time. Could be any place where you are anywhere in the world. And you can see, you can hear our back shows on visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-N, P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com. And uh, you hear us live on P-R-N dot F-M. A lot of other ways to hear as well through iTunes and uh, uh, TuneIn and stuff like that. So if you're listening through one of those, you know how to do it. I don't know how to do it, but I just use P-R-N dot F-M. I even use that in my car. I mean, I keep my phone plugged into the auxiliary jack. It's an older car, so it doesn't have Bluetooth. Uh, but I keep my phone plugged in, and I've got, you know, dozens of uh, audio books on my phone. I can pick up PRN, uh, some other things that are not on, not on the radio that way. And I was thinking today, what am I gonna, what, what's today's rant going to be? What am I going to talk about? So my general theme that I've been, I've been, uh, been sticking with my mind, is this great quote from Peter Thiel, where he asks, um, "What do you believe that few others believe?" Unfortunately, he doesn't say it as well. Um, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Though you're not supposed to end a sentence with a preposition and all that, but. Uh, and then he goes on to say, this is a question that sounds easy because it's straightforward. Actually, it's very hard to answer. It's intellectually difficult because the knowledge that everyone is taught in school is by definition agreed upon. It is psychologically difficult because anyone trying to answer must say something she knows to be unpopular. Brilliant thinking is rare but courage is in even shorter supply than genius. And then to explain what he means, he goes on. Well, first of all, this is one of his favorite interview questions. So Peter Thiel, you saw in uh, The Social Network, he's the first person to provide uh, public financing for investment financing for Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook. So... It was an incredible investment for Peter Thiel, who uh, also is one of the founders of PayPal. <clears throat> anyway, he gets – he's a venture capitalist. He runs a couple of companies, but he also finances companies. So people come in all day, every day. Think Shark Tank. Uh, so, you know, these people come in in 20-minute clips and make presentations on their company – and looking for financing. And he, uh, this is one of the questions he likes to ask. It sort of dopes out whom he's dealing with. And if you think about it, it's a very tricky question because 
Uh, maybe you don't want to say. <laughs> you could get in trouble. Speaking of getting in trouble, before I get on with my themes for today, but I, uh, every morning, every weekday morning, I read InsideHigherEd.com. And it's a newsletter for academics. I'm a professor type. And there's, it, there's not much about academia content, but it's about you know, problems of what's going on at schools, why people aren't enrolling in the liberal arts anymore, and blow-ups on campus. So the current headline is Evergreen Regroups Amid Discord. So there's some problems going on at Evergreen where uh, one of the professors said something. You know, I don't know why people feel this idiotic need to tweet. Anyway, he tweeted something. And he thought he was being a good uh, good citizen, but some people disagreed, and the whole thing is just blown up. And this Sunday, New York Times, uh, Frank Bruni has a, an op-ed these campus inquisitions must stop. And I won't, uh, I'll leave it at that. I don't want to talk more about what it's about. But you can look it up. Go to Google, look up Evergreen, or just go to the New York Times, look up Frank Bruni's column. But uh, apart from the controversy itself, it the reaction to it is, you say the wrong thing, you... Uh, <laughs> Good chance you'll be fired. And what you said was the right thing three weeks ago. Uh, you got to really keep your finger on the pulse. And, you know, it's like, it's like the Communist Party, you know, where, uh, no, that was that was the party line last week. <laughs> it's not the party line this week. And you get these all these prominent figures, you know, the the whole Politburo is standing up there in the review stand as the missiles go by every May Day in the old Soviet Union. And somebody falls out of favor. He gets airbrushed out of all the photos. <laughs> There's a famous photo where they airbrush somebody out. They forgot to airbrush out his shoes. So um, there's President standing next to a pair of shoes. Anyway, due to my uh, academic interests, I'm now reading a book called the Vanishing American Adult, Our Coming-of-Age Crisis, and How to Rebuild a Culture of Self-Reliance. So, uh, I'm, you know, I'm very interested in the character of my students, and the it's changing, of course. Um, I started teaching at the very tail end of the 60s, started in 69, and... You know, through the, the late 60s, early 70s, there was rebellion everywhere on campus. And the kids were very difficult, uh, but they were also very interesting. And they were very challenging, and they were very independently knowledgeable. I learned things from my students. I found out about books I didn't know about, about cool movies I didn't know about. Uh, I had one student who was always going back and forth to India to see his guru, uh, and, you know, I would rely on his taste in Tibetan art at exhibits, find out about, you know, this is an exhibit of Tibetan Tonkas. 
and which one should we buy? And that kind of thing where, um, I mean, I, you know, I was into a lot of cool stuff, but I was also learning from my students. I don't anymore. Um, this, this, you know, if you ask them, what's the most interesting book you read for school? To Kill a Mockingbird. There's nothing wrong with that book, but uh, is there anything that I don't know about, you know, that's... Uh, um, and so I'm sort of interested in the in this um, independence of our students. And I blame the school. You know, the school tries to blame high school or the culture. And Ben Sass's book is about the culture. But I, I blame my school that uh, if there's any independence in our students, we beat it out of them. You know, they... They learned not to challenge their teachers because their a lot of their teachers have delicate egos and can't handle being challenged. So they just learned to keep their mouth shut. Anyway, I'm watching uh, C-SPAN over the weekend, C-SPAN Book TV, and Ben Sass was on. So I have no idea who this is. I'm not a political junkie. <clears throat> I looked Ben Sass up in Wikipedia. And he's an American politician, academic, and author, member of the Republican Party, and the junior United States senator from the state of Nebraska, earned a doctorate in American history from Yale, taught at the University of Texas, assistant secretary of U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And in 2010, he was named president of Midland University in Fremont, Nebraska. 2014, he was elected to the U.S. Senate. So, um, you know, I've got pretty good perspective. Being a university president these days is a very quick learning process. And we had a great president at Pratt past uh, 20 plus years. We're getting a new president starting in a couple months. I'm, I, I don't like change. <laughs> but hopefully, you know, the new president will be terrific as well. I haven't met them yet. So, I so Ben Sass is talking about his book, and he begins with a story about his presidency, and they had a, some students were setting up a twenty foot Christmas tree in the in the um, vestibule to the basketball court or to the gym, and these were a bunch of uh, young people who were. Presumably very capable, you know, athletes, college students at a good college. And they, dec- they their job was to decorate the tree, and their decorations went up eight feet, as high as they could reach. One of the vice presidents goes by, and the students are packing up to leave, and the VP says, well, what's going on? You didn't finish the job. The students said, well, that's as high as we could reach. <laughs> the VP says, this is a gym. Is there a ladder anywhere? Did you ask maintenance if they could get you a ladder? Hadn't occurred to them. <laughs> Talk about a lack of initiative. Um, so, you know, most of my students do better than that. And it's one of the things that is a great thing about architecture school because Imagine you're in uh, some liberal arts program and you're talking about what's happening with books. 
you know, do, do we use the library anymore? Are we moving away from books? Are books disappearing? Where do we stand with books? So, you know, you can have lectures about that. You can read a book about that. You write a paper about that. But in architecture school, uh, maybe uh, we're going to design a library. So now, what, what's your library going to be like? Well, now you're engaged. I and mean, what, uh, what goes on in a library today as opposed to 20 years ago? And are there books? Are there other things? Do people use monitors? Uh, are there periodicals? Are there not periodicals? Are there databases? Do you have to go to the library to access something in a database? Uh, or could you do that from home or from your phone or your iPad? Interestingly, in some cases, you do have to go to the library because there are subscriptions to databases that are very expensive. And... Uh, it's required that you can only access them from a from a library from a library terminal. Well, I don't know why, but that's the way it is. Uh, my younger colleagues are very facile with those databases. I'm not. <laughs> I still get uh, my stuff from books, which I used to buy at the A Street Bookstore. Long gone, but you can now get any book on Amazon. And they'll have it used if it's not a current book. And if Amazon doesn't have it, A Books will. So between Amazon, A Books, and Half.com, we're in this great time of... uh, I remember when there was a rare book I wanted, and I wanted to get a couple of the books I had as a child. Three books. One was Hawthorne's Canterbury Tales. No, what is it? Hawthorne's... Something Tales, Tanglewood Tales. And it's a retelling of the Greek myths for children. And then there was a Golden Book Encyclopedia, this big one-volume oversized book I had in the late 40s as a kid. And then there was a little pamphlet you got by writing away. You you got several jello box tops, and you sent them off with a quarter. You got this little booklet which was a story about a duck. So these are the three things I wanted. And there was a woman I would always see at the um, at the book fairs, and she dealt in children's books. She got me all three of those. And she said the the the, the one about the duck was difficult because it wasn't Jello; it was junket. Who the hell eats junket today? But that was a kid dessert at the time. And but she found it. Today, you know, you can hunt those things down on, hunt those things down online. But anyway, so what, 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 how do we feel about libraries? How do we use libraries? What does a library mean today? And if you're a student designing one, you're confronting that question. What, what are you designing? What are the spaces? What's going to go on there? So there's, and then what are you going to build it out of? You're going to build it out of bricks? Bricks sort of look to the past. You're going to build it out of glass and steel. Glass and steel sort of looks to the future Um, or maybe the present. Uh, Maybe if you use uh, carbon fiber panels, that might look to the future. So where is your library positioned in past, present, future? And what are you saying about that in terms of how you actually build it? So we have all that uh, actually built into our education. The kids have to actually design this, build a model of it. And there are the kids with their, um, with their 
a chipboard, cutting it up, making models. And now, <laughs> you know, in my day, we had lots of Band-Aids on our fingers from our accidents with uh, mat knives and exacto knives. Today, the kids are more likely to use uh, a laser cutter to uh, cut out their their cardboard, and then they might use a milling machine for their for their model base. So they're really engaged with these tools in terms of making. You know, we talk about being in a making culture, and uh, it used to be that those were the kids in shop. <laughs> I remember the kids in auto mechanics in high school. I don't know if they have it anymore because you can't fix cars anymore because they're all, uh, it's all computerized. But in my school, the, you know, I don't want to put anybody down, but let's just say the less academically inclined kids were in auto shop. And we, we shared all the same gym classes, but they were in different English classes than the rest of us. You know, they were taking business math instead of uh, advanced algebra. But they would, you know, they could run a lathe. Uh, they could run a bandsaw. They could, uh, they could uh, uh, rebuild, regrease uh, race bearings. And today, something is happening where we're in that kind of world again where, you know, the, 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 the more, shall we say, academically inclined kids – might be building robots, might be building quadrocopters, and then writing the programs that run them. And so uh, one of my colleagues, a faculty colleague, is quite involved in this stuff. I go over to his studio. He's got these robots walking around carrying bricks. He's got a milling machine, a 3D printer, a uh, laser cutter, and wow, you know, just all in his own uh, his own studio. So anyway, I'm listening to this interview with Sass on C-SPAN books, and I said, you know, I this is going to be an interesting book for me because it deals with uh, what's going on with our kids. And I've been, uh, if you want to know what my thoughts are about education, if you go to johnlobel.com, I have all my stuff there. I mean, I have my books, links to you know, all my articles, the ones that I've been able to scan and and character recognize to get them in PDF, stuff like that. But in the the center front page, it's a blog. I, you know, it's built with WordPress. And off on the left, you find uh, resume and books and articles. But the center is my blog, and the the top blog, the top posting there, my thoughts about Pratt, there are 10, 10 or 11 postings I put up over a period of uh, six or eight months. And they're about what my school, but by extension, any school, should be thinking about. And so I'm thinking about this. You go there, you can see my thoughts. I'll talk a bit about that today. But that's why I was turned on by this uh, Ben Sass's discussion of the vanishing American adult, our coming-of-age crisis, and how to rebuild a culture of self-reliance. And so we start with, um, you know, what what should a school look like? And let's start with a, um, well, whether it's a, 
uh, elementary school or a high school or a college. It's, it's the same vision. Imagine you get to – you go to a junior high, and it's one of these buildings built, you know, in the 60s or 70s, and it's got rows of windows and rows of classrooms. What, what, what are we doing to our kids where, you know, from the age of uh, – kindergarten and now pre-kindergarten, we put them in rows, <laughs> in seats at desks, and now, you know, of course, high school's not enough. So, that, you know, doing uh, 13 years of this, kindergarten through 12th grade's not enough. Got to do another four years, so we get them through the 16th grade, and uh, they... Uh, well, what are we doing to these poor kids? That was that was a clock that fell down here. Uh, what are we doing to these poor kids? Let me move the clock so I can see it. And maybe, you know, there's more to education than sitting in rows. So, you know, what, what should a school look like? Imagine you're bringing your kid to um, first day of junior high. What might that junior high look like? I imagine that... The entrance to the school is a giant dome. Think of the Hayden Planetarium. You have a big, a big geodetic dome. And you go in there, and it's a, it's a tropical rainforest. And there's all these plants going in, the little plot areas where kids are experimenting with different, uh, growing different things. Um, maybe there's a genetics lab. They're hybridizing or... Uh, genetically altering different plants. You know, remember the the um, Big Bang Theory where Sheldon gets fired <laughs> for telling the new chair that he's not a real scientist and he's an idiot. And uh, eventually his mother comes and makes him apologize. He gets his job back. But while he's fired, he takes up he takes up weaving. He takes up this. He takes up that. He takes up genetically altering a goldfish so it will glow in the dark. Uh, so, you know, this is not difficult uh, with CRISPR technology. We don't want the kids uh, hybridizing the common cold with Ebola. Uh, that would not be good. But making a glow-in-the-dark goldfish, uh, you know, there's other ways to learn about genetics and sitting in rows uh, looking at uh, pages in textbooks. And Maybe there could be quadricopters flying around. And uh, maybe some kids are controlling them with uh, little joysticks. But maybe the quadricopters are controlling themselves with uh, artificial intelligence software, which the kids have written. And then the kids are sitting there rewrite, you know, with their laptops, rewriting the programs for the quadricopters so that they don't crash. Uh, and maybe they're little robots uh, doing the gardening. Um, and the kids are programming the robots, building the robots. So, you know, uh, maybe there are giant flat screens everywhere. Big. They're cheap now, right? And you can afford the whole walls covered with flat screens showing um, – Lectures by prominent people, uh, documentaries that the kids might be watching. Go over to one of the flat screens, put on the headphones, uh, and or, or tune your Bluetooth to that flat screen. And maybe some of the flat screens are showing what's going on in classes and labs and, and shops. And, uh, you know, going on live. And then 
if it's college, uh, maybe all the lectures should be recorded. I record all my lectures, and there's about 100 of them on YouTube. Uh, my colleagues don't like that, <laughs> and for two reasons. I mean, one is some of them maybe uh, uh, feel that well, you know what they're communicating should be private. That's fine. Uh, the the my recording only captures my voice and my PowerPoint. Doesn't show me or the kids. So then I shut it off when we get to question and answer and discussion. So that's you know that could be an issue, and I I address that. Uh, but maybe some of my colleagues, their lectures aren't as good as they should be, and they're you know they don't want anybody to know. Well, where's that at? What kind of uh, what kind of uh, way to treat students is that? And then some of them uh, have a <coughs> excuse me, they're concerned about copyright. You know, I'm full time, so if my class doesn't fill up, I'm still there. But uh, part timers, if their class doesn't, you know, they have two classes, one doesn't fill up, they make half as much money. So their concern is, wait a minute. You're going to record my lecture, and then next year you won't have me back. You'll just show the recording. So that's a concern. I don't, you know, I don't claim to have an answer. Something we have to address. And, but, you know, that's no reason not to record it and at least uh, let the faculty member hang on to it. But um, there's just so many. I mean, I've been teaching a long time. And between my colleagues and guest lectures, there have been some incredible lectures delivered, and they're gone. Well, wh- why? Uh, now, we, you know, for the lecture series in our School of Architecture, we try to, uh, the uh, one of the departments records them. So presumably they exist somewhere. I got to go see if I can, if I can uh, see, watch them. Excuse me. <coughs> Still working on recovering my voice. Um, but anyway, so there should be monitors everywhere with uh, lectures, past lectures, live streaming of what's going on in the classroom. And um, imagine um, what, um, what would be like to have this available. So think about that. I'm going to take a break and uh, work on some cough drops and uh, my voice. And we'll be back in just a minute. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might find. Progressive Radio Network, the number one network for those who care about the truth. This is Dr. Cheryl Selman, and I'm the host of What Women Must Know, every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. As a naturopathic doctor and psychotherapist, I'm always seeking the latest solutions to help you rejuvenate and regenerate your body, mind, and spirit. 
So join me, Dr. Cheryl, and my inspiring guests, authors, health practitioners, and wise elders to empower yourself by expanding your knowledge about your health and your hormones and to gain fresh new perspectives on life. That's What Women Must Know every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Progressive Radio Network, information for the independent mind. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might find. Welcome back. John LaBelle, your host on Visionaries. We're here every Monday on PRN.FM. Catch our back shows on visionaries.podbean.com. Back shows, we interviewed the cultural critic, John David Ebert, the transhumanist, Natasha Vita Moore, the visionary futurist architect, Bill Catavalis. He's 93 now. Um, Bob Walter, president of the Joseph Campbell Foundation, talking about uh, Joseph Campbell. Louis Serena, about artificial intelligence. Lots more. So you'll find that at visionaries.podbean.com. You can listen, stream, or download them. And today I'm talking about, um, well, I was inspired by a book by um, Ben Sass about Um, Kids Today, The Vanishing American Adult, Our Coming-of-Age Crisis, and How to Rebuild a Culture of Self-Reliance. Now, interestingly, Ben Sass bills himself as uh, having a conservative voting record. He's a Republican. And uh, there's maybe a word that would freak people a little bit here, self-reliance. So remember... When uh, in school, hopefully, we read some uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. His famous essay is called Self-Reliance. Maybe we're not supposed to read that these days. We're supposed to be more communitarian. Yeah, more communitarian these days. But anyway, uh, I I recall things like as a kid, um, you know, the importance of— Sleepaway camp in terms of just being able to uh, realize you can survive away from home. Uh, things like my my wife uh, was born in Panama, and she would walk to school as a little girl, you know, second, third grade, and through the jungle and see these giant colorful parrots and other birds and, you know, the giant flowers and the tropical rainforest, and I walked through the woods to school um, when I was in kindergarten, first grade. It was not very far. I, you know, I remember it being a lot further when I go back and revisit where I lived. Oh, that wasn't very far. And then it was a couple blocks to school when I was in third, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade in. Uh, two different places where we lived, but I always walked. And my school, both cases, uh, until 
the sixth grade. Schools didn't have a cafeteria. They were, uh, I'd walk home for lunch, and which what tells you about, you know, <laughs> a stay-at-home mom, or in my case, a stay-at-home mom or a grandfather. Uh, my grandparents lived with us. And uh, there were a couple of kids who, you know, didn't go home for lunch, and they would just bring a, a bag lunch and eat in class during the lunch break. Today, a parent would get arrested for letting their kid walk through the jungle uh, or the woods to go to school. And uh, so, what you know, what happens to these kids who don't who don't have those experiences? Um, I one of the colleagues I work with right now describes how uh, when he was a kid, he was building rockets in the backyard. I was building cannons. <laughs> So I don't know how we found the recipe for gunpowder. Um, there was no Internet then, but it's uh, sulfur, saltpeter, and carbon. Uh, so the powdered carbon was easy. It took charcoal briquettes, and you scrape them against the screen. There's your carbon. And then, But he, before I figured that out, I walk into the drugstore, and I say, uh, I need to buy saltpeter, uh, sulfur, and powdered charcoal. And the drug goes to the back and buzz, 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 buzz to his colleague. You hear buzz, 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 gunpowder. <laughs> so he comes back and he says, uh, sorry, we don't sell any of that. So, I, okay, now I need to go to three separate drug stores <laughs> and buy one ingredient in each of the different drug stores. Sorry, Mom, about those cannons. <laughs> anyway, we took copper tubing, cut them with a... Hacksaw, hammered one end closed, you know, drilled a little hole in it, stuck a match in there to ignite the gunpowder. <laughs> so, you know, that's not good. You know, you could blow something off like a finger, but it's how you um, became independent. You know, learn how to do things uh, uh, on your own. And so I'm thinking about um, these uh, what... Ben Sass is talking about here this perpetual adolescence. And I'm wondering if um, we're actually breeding a new kind of person. And the idea of breeding a different person is not a new idea. I mean, there's, uh, <clears throat> first of all, let's just sort of look around and see a notion of cultural difference. So, I recall reading something in Malcolm Gladwell, and I'm not sure which book it was in. Let's just see if it says here, excerpt from chapter 8. Yeah, but which book? Anyway, um, so I go to uh, Gladwell. And I put in, in, before I came here this morning, put in Malcolm Gladwell and Rice Patties, came up with this. And this excerpt from this chapter in his book, um, I think it's on exceptionalism. I forget the name of the book. But anyway, anyway, all, all, all Gladwell books are recommended. He says, take a look at the following list of numbers. Four, eight, five, three, nine, seven, six. Read them out loud to yourself. Now look away and spend 20 seconds memorizing that sequence before saying them aloud again. If you speak English, you have about a 50% chance of remembering the sequence perfectly. 
If you're Chinese, you're almost certain to get it right every time. Why is that? Because as human beings, we store digits in a memory loop that runs for about two seconds. We most easily memorize whatever we can say or read within that two-second span. And Chinese speakers get that list of numbers, 4, 8, 5, 3, 9, 7, 6, right every time because, unlike English speakers, their language allows them to fit all seven numbers into two seconds. And um, so he goes on to talk about that, <clears throat> but he talks more about cultural differences between uh, Europeans and Chinese in terms of their agriculture. And he talks about the difference between uh, what he calls a wheat culture and a rice culture. So in a wheat culture, um, <laughs> at the end of the season, you plant the wheat. At the end of the season, you harvest the wheat, you make beer, and you sleep all winter <laughs> drinking the beer, uh, <clears throat> which leads to a certain type of person, we can imagine. Um, in a rice culture, you have to make a rice patty. And that rice patty as, oh, maybe it's 12 feet square and it has a clay bottom and then it has to be tilted in an exact precise way. And then you put the little rice uh, seedlings in there and then you allow water to come in it just an exact precise way. comes in too quick. It'll wash away your rice, uh, your rice seedlings. You won't have any rice. And you have to very carefully monitor the um, the water intake and outlet. You have to have built the rice paddy right uh, correctly to begin with. And as a result, you are you have to be a kind of careful precision performer, thinker and performer. So, you know, without wanting to racially stereotype anyone— we do notice that some Asians do better in science and math. Uh, simply look at the enrollees in your uh, in your physics department at a school or your computer science department, and Gladwell contends that the Chinese are acculturated to think in a in a way that makes them more suited for certain kinds of science and math. Well. Let's assume um, that that's right, but then let's maybe see if we want to go a step further. I mean, why would, you, if your great-grandfather was a rice farmer uh, or your great-grandparents were rice farmers, why would that affect the way you think today? You have, you know, you, you, you didn't grow up being a rice farmer. And maybe there's also a genetic selection so that let's say that Someone who's predisposed to be uh, precise, um, orderly, um, is going to have better rice pads, more food, uh, more likely to attract uh, a mate, uh, and can afford more children. And someone who's sloppy, <laughs> whose rice pad, uh, uh, you know, washes away all the rice seedling, doesn't harvest much rice— uh, doesn't uh, get a wife, uh, has a harder time getting a wife, can afford to feed less kids, and those genes are passed on less. So we tend to have been told that, uh, well, yeah, over a million years or 100,000 years, 
but human beings haven't changed genetically in 100,000 years. So there's just not enough time for that kind of change. But maybe there is. So recently, there's been a fascinating uh, story about Russian domesticated red fox. So um, the story began, well, let's go back and uh, talk about Lamarckianism and Lysenkoism. So Lamarck, who was a you know predecessor to Darwin, had had in trying to well evolution was understood to happen. I mean it was widely accepted that things evolved. Uh, Charles Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, was a famous evolutionary theorist. What Darwin did was pin it down and give an explanation, namely natural selection, natural variation and natural selection. And before Darwin, Lamarck had speculated that, well, um, uh, you have these animals and they're called giraffes. They don't have long necks yet. And they eat the leaves high up in trees and they stretch their necks to, uh, to, get, it, to get up there. And their offspring will have longer necks. So it's called the inheritance of acquired characteristics. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, um, you know, that's pretty well discredited. Uh, you can take lab mice for 100 generations, cut the tails off mice, have them reproduce, cut the tails off. Uh, t- that acquired characteristic of no tail does not get inherited. Um, what does get inherited is natural variations or mutations, and then they get selected for it. So that's Darwinism. Now, um, Lamarckianism still tends to hang around, and even Darwin for a while was a Lamarckian. And, um, you know, thinking, well, maybe this uh, when Charles, I'm looking at Wikipedia. When Charles Darwin published his theory of evolution, he continued to give credence to what he called use and disuse inheritance, but rejected other aspects of Lamarck's theory. Well, one form of Lamarckianism was Lysenkoism. And, <coughs> excuse me, so Lysenko was a Russian geneticist, uh, sort of, uh, who proposed an extreme form of Lamarckianism where he claimed he could uh, dip uh, um, wheat grain seeds in cold water and would make them hardier for cold weather. And he had a whole bunch of screwball theory like this. He said he could breed rye from wheat, wheat from rye, um, and he rejected Mendelian inheritance. And he began in the mid-20s, and his theories held in Russia right up into the 1960s. Thousands, literally thousands of genetic scientists were executed. Uh, Joseph Stalin supported the campaign. More than 3,000 mainstream biologists were sent to prison, fired, or executed as part of a campaign instigated by Lysenko to suppress his scientific opponents. So 
uh, <laughs> Russian genetic science was really screwed up uh, until just recently because they executed all the people who were, you know, scientifically inclined and only promoted uh, and supported screwball Lamarckians. Well, anyway, finally, in trying to get somewhere and going back to reasonable genetic theories, uh, a group of Russian scientists started breeding red foxes. And they're off in Siberia, and rather than trap foxes for these beautiful fur coats, poor foxes um, were against this, uh, uh, would breed the foxes. And then something started to happen. They said, you know, uh, to oversimplify, we got two kinds of foxes here. Those who are docile, and, you know, you can pet them, and those who are nasty and they snap at you if you get near them. Let's turn the nasty ones that snap at you into fur coats. And let's breed the, the, the nice ones that uh, like to be petted. And <clears throat> it only took about 20 generations where they had a domestic fox. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, they were asking the question, how do you get dogs from wolves? Today, we're pretty certain dogs 100% come from wolves. We now, you know, we can sequence the DNA. For a while, they said, well, there any coyote in dogs, you know? No, it's 100% come from wolves. And it's, some wolves got domesticated, and then they got bred for the different breeds of dogs. And so how that happened, what actually goes, transpires. And the foxes were easier to breed <clears throat> they're related to wolves and dogs, but they're easier to breed. And they were able to, to breed them going from wild uh, foxes to domesticated foxes. And, and then they notice what, what characterizes domesticated foxes. They wag their tails when you get near them. They have floppy ears, uh, and they love to be petted. They turned into dogs. <laughs> they even got spots, which apparently is another characteristic of Difference differentiates dogs from wolves, and the generalization. What is it, what is it? Were they just selecting for these various characteristics, or was there some general principle that the inheritance was using to get from one to the other? And what it was was prolongation of um, of infancy or of adolescence. In other words, when Animals are young, tigers, bears, foxes. They are fine with people. You know, you get a young bear cub or lion cub or tiger cub. They love to be held and petted and played with and given the nursing bottle and all that. Um, and what characterizes these? Well, they're immature and you know, they have waggy tails and bushy fur and floppy ears. And what was happening to the domesticated foxes is they were prolonging this youthful period into adulthood or the characteristics of this youthful period into adulthood. So uh, here we are able to actually change the, shall we say, attitude and behavior of these wild creatures, foxes, turning them into 
domesticated creatures, um, you know, basically turning them into dogs. Well, other people have had this idea. And in its early days, communism knew that it, it, this wasn't going to work. This is not in people's nature. <laughs> That's why they had to exterminate a few million people to try to get it to hold on. Uh, you know, mostly these uh, communist countries are uh, have to be totalitarian. And they knew they needed a new a new human being. And it's called the new Soviet man. So, again, uh, before coming in this morning, I go to Wikipedia and I looked for... Uh, <clears throat> I looked for this and, and, and it popped up in Wikipedia as New Soviet Man. New Soviet Man or New Soviet Person, although the New Soviet Woman is different from the New Soviet Man, as postulated by the ide- ide- ideologists of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, was an archetype of a person with certain qualities that were said to be emerging as dominant among all citizens of the Soviet Union, irrespective of the, of the country's cultural, ethnic, and linguistic diversity, creating a single Soviet people, Soviet nation. So... Uh, from the early times, ide- uh, ideologists of communism postulate that within the new society of pure communism and the social conditions therein, a new man and new woman would develop with qualities reflecting surrounding circumstances of post-scarcity and uh, unprecedented scientific development. So this is going to be... Uh, man will make it his purpose to master his own feeling, to raise his instinct to the heights of consciousness, to make them transparent, to extend the wires of his will into hidden recesses, and thereby raise himself to a new plane to create a higher social biologic type, or if you please, a superman. Uh, and it's going to repress competitiveness and engage in cooperation. Well, Sounds to me like what's going on on college campuses. <laughs> Woo! I, uh, I'm, I'm involved in curriculum discussion right now where we're decolonizing the curriculum. Uh, we are, and oh, my school is now getting a chief diversity officer. And apparently, we'll eventually have to go in for self-confession, where we uh, talk about the the evils of our white privilege. Uh, So, uh, and I I mean, I'm totally, I'm a real big diversity person. I've taught non-Western architecture for years. I'm a student of shamanism, Buddhism, Taoism. I'm into lots of cultures uh, and have had terrific students from all cultures. But uh, it's also interesting how uh, we see that's not really what the the new decolonized campus is going to be about, however. Uh, it's all about some form of crypto-Marxism. Uh, I don't exactly get it, but uh, that's what's going on. So anyway— I'm reading. Um, I'm reading this book. I have to confess, I hardly read anymore. Uh, by Ray Ray Discover, Aha, Vanishing American Adult is available on audio. 
so I downloaded it, and I'm a bit into it. And um, uh, so let me just read what it says on Amazon about the book. In an era of safe spaces, if you're not in academia, do you know what a safe space is? Uh, that's where snowflake kids can go, and no one's going to challenge them with, with you know, talking about anything they can't handle. Trigger warnings. The <laughs> Actually, you know, I was doing trigger warnings long before, you know, like 15 years ago. Because when you get to modern art, there's uh, some stuff we might call uh, pornographic. Um, Egon Shealy, uh things like that. And um, so I make a point at the beginning of the lecture saying this, this stuff's going to show up. And if anybody doesn't want to sit through this lecture, there's no penalization on the exam. Because, you know, people have cultural backgrounds where they may not want to look at that. Uh, so I guess I'm guilty of giving trigger warnings. Um, but anyway, trigger warning is telling a student that, you know, uh, a particularly offensive word or a description of something you might not be able to handle is going to happen in this book. Um, so that's a trigger warning. So we're supposed to do that on campuses. And an unprecedented election. Oh, yeah, everybody's freaked out about uh, the, the how the election went. So um, uh, the country's youth is in crisis. <laughs> oh, I remember. I now I remember crisis. I remember when my students would get drafted and go off to Vietnam and not come back. To me, that I think that's crisis. <laughs> I, you know, having to deal with watching the news at night and uh, what what the hell the president is going to say today. I don't think that's like dra- being get drafted and going to Vietnam and not coming back. Senator Ben Sass warns the nation about the existential threat to America's future. Raised by well-meaning but overprotective parents and coddled by well-meaning but misbegotten government programs, America's youth are ill-equipped to survive in our highly competitive global economy. Well, you know, we we have as much cooperation as competition in my school. Uh, you know, we, we you know the kids work in teams, and uh, build, building models is with laser cutters and routers and uh, 3D printers uh, uh, can take uh, a lot of different skills. So I I totally I have no problem with teamwork, but. Uh, Poor Ben Sass, he's worried about these kids. So I, there's a lot in the book that's of interest. He, he begins by talking about how the air conditioner in their household went out, and it was in the high 70s, and his kids couldn't survive. <laughs> they came in the middle of the night. We can't sleep. <laughs> Jeez. So, um, you know, at the same time, these are the kids who— who go off to Peru to help people build wells, you know? I, um, I, uh, so, you know, there are plenty of, plenty of kids today who can, who can handle, uh, uh, their own, uh, what, what, self-reliance and whatever. But I'll report more on what Ben Sass has to say, uh, as I read more of the book. But, you know, my, my greater concern is how, the creativity and innovativeness of the kids is being repressed by the schools 
And I think, you know, there's some snowflake faculty members who can't handle being criticized and um, um, also, you know, sort of teach the kids what they did for their PhDs rather than give them the tools to think for themselves. So you have to think about here and how we create uh, innovative, self-reliant, able-to-think-for-themselves kids who can teach me something. So... Uh, let's wrap up. This is John LaBelle. We've been listening to Visionaries here every Monday, 10 a.m. New York time, different times for the rest of the world. Our back shows on, are on visionaries.podbean.com. And uh, tune in next week for more ranting. <laughs>